Welcome to the Jongets Games Podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent Good Games vlog. In that vlog, I discussed my initial impressions on Carcassonne Maps, the Great Britain version, also Carnegie, as well as Cubitos and Dune Imperium. Now, I will be obviously going through them in alphabetical order, and if you'd like to skip ahead to a specific section, then check out the description of this podcast to find the specific timestamps. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. Now, you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. and if you do enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope you would consider directly supporting that campaign. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. All right, let's now start talking about these games, and the first of them is Carcassonne Maps, the Great Britain edition. Now, I don't know a lot about this because uh, I was able to play a tabletop simulator version of just the Great Britain map that uh, a friend of mine actually bought, and they scanned it into Tabletop Simulator. Now, I love Carcassonne. It's a game that I've loved for a very long time, and when my friend told me that we had the opportunity to play with this maps version, I jumped at the chance. So, a very brief overview of Carcassonne. This is a tile-laying game that came out about 20 years ago, and on your turn you just place a single square tile down, and the edges of the tile have to exactly match the terrain of the other tiles that you've placed down, and then you could put meeples down onto various spots in order to score things like cities, farms, and roads, but I won't go into the details of that. Now, in Carcassonne you just keep playing until all of the tiles are played out, and then you add up all the points that you got at the end from farmers and that you got in the middle of the game, and that is a game that you just play out on the table with just tiles. Now, with these maps, you actually actually play on top of a large board, uh, or maybe it's a poster. I think it's actually a poster. <laughs> I've only played it online. That shows you um, an image of some country like France or Great Britain, and you actually play onto the grid that it shows out there on the table. So I was quite interested to try this because obviously that's a more constrained area. You can't just go off in a whole bunch of different directions, but then there's other stuff going on here as well. Again, normally you just play on a blank table, but when you play on the map, there are other rules. And in fact, each one of the different maps have slightly different rules to them, and I've only played the Great Britain version. Um, now, on the map, there are are various towns that when you uh, play alongside them, you can get bonus points, and there are other spots that are essentially cities that have started that you can run up against and then make even bigger cities. So it can be very explosive with the amount of points that you can get uh, for a lot of the areas that you are making. But then there are also new mechanics. Uh, for instance, with these maps, there is obviously a border. And the interesting thing about this is whenever you place a tile next to the border on these maps, all of the edges on the border are effectively completed. Now, normally, in order to complete something like a city or a road, you have to actually reach a terminator for the road or like completely surround that city with walls. But with the edges of these maps, you can just place a tile there and it counts as completed. So that means it's a lot easier to complete things around the edge of the map. And there's a lot of edge to this map. So it's actually a somewhat more forgiving game of Carcassonne because you can score things that normally you would not have any dreams of being able to score because you can utilize the edge of the map. Now, when it comes to the Great Britain map, there are these spots where you can put little tokens down, they're coins and you flip them over so you can't see the value. And when you place a tile on top of those, you can take the coin and then you get victory points equal to the number on the back, which is just one or two. But then in addition to that, if you have a certain set of these coins at any point, you're forced to cash them in in order to do this bonus action, which is pretty interesting. Now, it involves the Island of Man or the Isle of Man, 
And whenever you cash these in, you can pull all your meeples back from the Isle of Man. Well, I haven't talked about how they go there, and that is a fascinating thing about the Great Britain map. After you take your turn, you can send one of your meeples from your supply into the Isle of Man, where they are now stuck until you're able to release them by cashing in a set of tokens in order to take another turn. So there's this kind of push your luck thing going on here where you're oftentimes trying to think, is it worth getting rid of a meeple to take another turn right now where I could potentially, you know, close something off or score something or, you know, jump onto an opportunity that one of my opponents will likely get to before my next turn. But of course you lose that meeple until you <laughs> jump on enough of these coins to be able to cash out and get these meeples back. And you cannot be sure uh, necessarily all the time of which uh, coins you're going to get to make these different sets. So there was this really interesting ebb and flow where unlike a normal game of Carcassonne where you just place a tile, maybe place a meeple and then your turn is over. We had many situations where people would take double turns or maybe even triple turns because if you place on specific spots on the board, you also get to take another turn, although you have to lose a few points for it. So there's these extra complications that you have on top of a standard game of Carcassonne, and it was fascinating. Uh, we played a three-player game of this, and um, the rules for them actually tell you how many tiles you should play with. Um, for this one, I think it recommended 90 to 100 tiles, so we played with 90. Uh, we were playing in Tabletop Simulator, so we were able to, you know, pick and choose from a variety of different uh, uh, expansions and then, you know, put those out and play them. And the game was longer because <laughs> obviously it has a lot more tiles than a standard game of Carcassonne. I think a standard game is closer to 50. So our game probably took two hours or so, and we were not playing terribly fast, but all of us really enjoyed it. We, we liked the extra decisions um, of do I take an extra turn right now? There were several times where I feel like that kind of uh, backfired on me, where I decided to take another turn because I really wanted a tile to go over here, and then I couldn't place the new tile there, and suddenly I have no more meeples in front of me, and so now I desperately need to score something that I've already put a meeple out on, or I need to desperately put tiles down onto those tokens that might make me a set to pull back all of my people from Isle of Man. So it had this really interesting extra complexity there, while also, again, being easier to complete stuff because of the borders. And uh, it all wrapped up into a very pleasant experience. I enjoy Carcassonne already, so I was not expecting to dislike the overall game. And I think after playing one full game of it, my perspective on it is... I enjoyed playing it, and I could see myself playing on this map or other maps in the, uh, in the future. There are a variety of maps, only one of them that I have access to right now because those extra rules are interesting, but it did kind of feel like cheating, specifically with the edges of the map, being able to just have that edge be auto-completed compared to everything else. It just seemed like it was a lot easier to pull off some really big city combos and whatnot that you wouldn't normally be able to do. So if you want to play a game of Carcassonne where it's a bit cheaty and you get you can like steal extra turns and do all these kind of stuff, then uh, definitely check this out. Uh, I, I will not turn down a play of this one in the future. Uh, I don't actually own a copy of it. Again, my friend has a copy, so I played their copy. Um, and I don't see myself running out to go buy this map or other maps. Uh, based off of what I've seen from the other maps, I think the Great Britain map might be the one I'm most, most interested in because that's the one that has these kind of free extra turns if you want to take them because that was a, a pretty big shift to the base game of Carcassonne. Um, so not having played the others, I think Great Britain is probably the one that still intrigues me the most. But in the future, I'll probably most likely be still playing without any of these maps because again, I don't own it and I don't think I'm going to track one down. And I do have a copy of the base version of Carcassonne. Uh, I will say <laughs> that since we put a bunch of expansions in, uh, we saw tiles that had a bunch of different icons on them that I wasn't familiar with from the first few expansions. And it did leave me feeling like 
maybe I should try some of these expansions. Like I love Carcassonne. I think the base game of Carcassonne is exceptional by itself. And I'm usually not a big expansions kind of person, but seeing all these little extra goods icons on cities and stuff made me intrigued. So um, that might spark me uh, exploring some more of the Carcassonne variants that are out there with uh, expansions uh, because I like the base game and there's obviously a lot more that can be explored. All right, let's now move on to the second game I'll be discussing, and that one is Carnegie. Now, some caveats here at the start. I did make a sponsored tutorial for this game. I was paid for from the publisher, uh, and I did play this one online. There's an official tabletop simulator mod. So I am obviously significantly biased because I have an ongoing relationship with this publisher, and I was paid to make content for it. But I was so intrigued by the game uh, after making the tutorial that I uh, actively went out and uh, made sure I got to play a game with at least one of my friends, and now I want to tell you about it. So that's all of the caveats uh, to the side. I do want to discuss my impression, but at the start, let's let's briefly cover the, an overview of the game. Again, I made a full uh, tutorial, so if you'd like to learn more about it, then please check out that video. But at its heart, this is a really strange cycling type of game where you have a board in front of you, your own player board, with a bunch of departments that have different actions on them, and you have a workforce on them. And when it is a round of the game, only one of the players will decide what of the four main actions will be activated, um, kind of like uh, Puerto Rico. Now, after that is done, everyone will do just that specific action, which could be human resources or uh, construction or something like that. And you perform those actions based off of the departments that you have and the workforce on those specific departments. And many of the actions involve you utilizing one of your workforce and they stay on your board and you can use them again to do their ability in the future. But also many of them involve sending a worker out on a mission, which means you remove them from your board and you place them onto one of the four mission spots in the middle of the map of the United States in the middle of the table. Now, that means that worker is no longer in your department, so the next time you do this action, they won't be there, so therefore that action is potentially going to be less powerful. However, <laughs> every single round of the game, there's going to be an event that happens, and that will either be a uh, charitable donation event, or it'll be income. The income events are associated with the four different mission zones on the map, so if an event is activated for a mission zone with one of your people that you sent out on a mission, then you actually pull that person back, put them into your lobby, and then generate income. Now, income comes from these tabs that are on the right side of your board. You're going to be building projects by removing these little house tokens and putting them onto the map. And every single house that you remove will unveil some kind of income. It could be money, it could be uh, goods cubes, which you need, it could be victory points, or even um, generating more workforce. And what that means is there is this really interesting cycle where you are trying to utilize the workers that you have in your departments. You're trying to send them out, which obviously weakens those departments, but you need to do that because the income that you can get by pulling them back into your area is so big that you just cannot win the game if you do not uh, focus on making sure that you're constantly pulling the people back. Now, the area that you put it into is going to be uh, important. That's an important decision because it might be specified by where you're constructing projects, or it could just be a decision that you make based off of what the future events are looking like. Every single time you play the game, you randomize up this timeline board, and it shows you where each one of the action tokens is going to be moving across. And again, I'm trying not to go into all the specifics here. I'm trying to be very high level. Uh, now, one of the actions that you can do lets you move your workforce. And this is important because, again, the cycle means you send a person out, you pull them back as income into your lobby, and then if you do one of these movement actions, you can then move them out of your lobby and into other departments. And you are able to build more departments as you're playing through the game, which will increase your um, options that you can uh, utilize as you're trying to put the people down on there. And you have to pay for most of the spots that you put people on, but again, I'm not going into the specifics. So you're going to play through 20 rounds, and you will um, always have 
each one of the players go in turn order, essentially uh, choosing what action is going to be. That's a very poor way of saying in a two-player game, every other round, you are going to decide what the main action is. So you will decide on 10 out of the 20 rounds. Um, in a three-player game, you will be deciding on six or seven of the actions in the uh, game. And in a four-player game, you're only going to be deciding on five of the 20 actions that are happening throughout the game. Now, I've only played the game at two players at this point, um, and I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Honestly, I found it uh, super fascinating. Um, there's this donation mechanic where they get more expensive as the game goes on, and each donation gives you some conditional endgame victory points. And there are ways to modify this stuff, and you mostly put them down through um, through various events. And in our two-player game, I remember we got to the end of the game, but we hadn't actually scored final scoring. And we had a discussion, my, myself and my friend Nick, about what we thought about the game. We, we wanted to see where we were before we knew who won, because we had no idea who was going to win. There is victory points you get from network scoring, and I was obviously a lot better at that than Nick, but also Nick had a couple more donations than I did, which was really worrisome. And uh, we just discussed it a bunch, and we, we both talked about how we found it odd, but refreshing and also interesting. Uh, and then we did the final scoring, and it turns out Nick beat me by a pretty sizable amount. But um, based off of some tiny decisions that I could have made differently, um, that sizable amount could have been drastically reduced. Uh, but again, it's a strange game that did not feel like something I've played before. And so on your first play, it makes sense that you're going to be uh, making some inefficient actions. Now, since then, <laughs> my friend Nick has played six or more games of this one on Board Game Arena. Uh, at one point, I think he was like the top ranked player <laughs> over there. And uh, we keep talking about it. Like he keeps playing it over and over again. And in his experience, I'm you know, using his words now, not mine, uh, he thinks the game is best at four players uh, and worst at two players uh, because he, in his opinion, and I could totally understand this, um, the game is really all about playing around what your opponents are going to be doing. So if it's built around that idea of only one in four-ish of the rounds, you get to decide what, what's going to happen. Well, you have to be much more reactive. And I think there's probably a lot more interesting stuff going on versus a situation in a two-player game where you decide on every other action. Uh, and again, I enjoyed it at the two-player game. So I'm excited to hear him say that it's significantly better at three and even better than that at four players. Uh, so I'm hoping to get a chance to play it at one of those higher player counts uh, soon, honestly. Uh, he's probably going to destroy me <laughs> considering he's played the game so many times, uh, but that's fine. Uh, I was still intrigued enough to want to try this one again, and honestly, I've just been busy playing a bunch of other things. There's a lot of different games to play, uh, and I've been focusing on trying to play uh, games from 2020 so that I can work on a, uh, a top 10 list for 2020 games. So Carnegie's been a little bit to the wayside since I played it about two weeks ago or so. Um, now, I think I've been a little bit scatterbrained, but I want to wrap this one up by saying um, I was very intrigued by what I saw when I did the tutorial, and that was enough to make me want to play the game with a friend. I really enjoyed that game, and obviously that friend enjoyed it enough to play it like six plus times with other people after that, and I actually backed the campaign. Um, I put my money where my mouth is because I think this game looks really interesting. Uh, so even though I was paid to make a video for the campaign, I then paid my own money, I guess part of the money that I was paid to make the video, to actually get a copy of it. Uh, I probably could have asked for a press copy, but I don't know. I, I, sometimes I feel weird about that when it's uh, realistically me just wanting the game for personal reasons, not for John Gates Games reasons. So yeah, I enjoyed the game enough and was intrigued enough to actually put my money where my mouth is, and I'm looking forward to getting a copy at some point in the future, although it's pretty likely I'll end up playing this one more online before that even becomes a reality. Um, I suppose it's worth mentioning that right now the Kickstarter campaign is still going. Uh, I'm not sure how, for how much longer. And um, there's a bunch of departments that you get with the Kickstarter campaign that don't come with the base game. Uh, right now you can only play with the base game departments online, and that's a big reason why I decided to 
go for it and back the Kickstarter campaign because I feel like having extra variety of different departments that you can play with will probably help uh, for long-term uh, variability. But um, either way, that is uh, my initial impression on Carnegie. I'm looking forward to playing it more. Well, let's now move on to the third game I'll be discussing, and that one is Cubitos. Now, this one was sent over to me about a month ago or so from AEG. I don't think it's fully released yet, but they did send me a press copy uh, out of the blue. <laughs> they didn't tell me it was actually arriving. Uh, so I was pretty interested to get it because I've seen some buzz about this on Twitter, and I immediately set about making a private tabletop simulator mod so that I could play this one with friends because... Right now, I'm not really playing physical copies of games with people. Uh, so at this point, I have now played three games, one at four players and one at two, uh, two at two players, sorry. And uh, this is a really strange game. So let's talk about it at a high level. Now, this is a race game where there are four different maps that come in the game. And you are these strange little blocky animals, and you're trying to essentially do one full lap around the map, or some of the maps don't actually cycle back to the same spot. Either way, go from start to finish. The way it works is dice pool building. Uh, it's kind of like a deck builder in that way where you roll at the beginning of the game nine dice on your turn. And there's this interesting push your luck thing where everybody's going to simultaneously roll all the dice that they need to roll. And most of the faces on these dice are blank, which was very strange to me when I first <laughs> opened up the game and realized there are a bunch of dice that have like one face and then five blank sides. But the way it works is you roll all your dice and then you can re-roll and you can keep re-rolling, but every time you roll a face, you have to put that off to the side and then just re-roll all the dice that did not roll a face. Now, as soon as you have three dice that have shown a face, then if you roll the rest of your dice and you get no more faces, then you bust and you don't get to use any of the dice that you've already um, utilized. Any of those faces, you don't get them, but there's a bit of a uh, constellation prize that you get for that. So what it means is you are starting off, obviously you're safe until you roll at least three faces, so there can be a bunch of rolling, but then once you get those three or more, there is this push-your-luck element where you're just like, come on, the odds the odds have to say that I'm probably going to get at least one more face and I just need one more coin or one more uh, movement to pull off the turn that I want to do. And uh, more often than not, in my case, it seems like I would bust. Uh, but either way, once everybody has decided to stop or they busted, then you actually use the die faces to do a variety of things. A bunch of these faces give you coins and you can spend those coins to buy more dice that then go into your discard area. Uh, and there are also, um, with each of these dice, specific uh, custom abilities. Uh, there are, I believe, eight different uh, main colored dice in the game. And every time you play this game, you can use a different mashup of these abilities. What I mean is there is, for instance, a dog die. And there are seven cards that come in the game associated with the dog die. And every time you play Cubitos, you only use one of those seven cards. So there are eight different dice, each of which have seven different cards that you will play with for that entire game that dictate what that die does, which means there is an astronomical um, um, number of combinations of um, different dice abilities that you could have while you're playing this game, in addition to the fact, of course, that there are four different maps that you could play on. So you are trying to buy the best dice for that moment, and then going to the next round, you then take all the dice from your you know, reserve area. And if you run out of dice, then you pull all those from your discard pile, and bring them over. So it's got a kind of a standard deck building vibe there. Uh, there are usually going to be ways to remove dice from your area as you're trying to hone your dice pool. And these dice do a wide variety of things. Uh, they might protect you from extra busts. They might give you a whole bunch of coins. They might um, move you a bunch on the map because for every foot that you roll, you get to move once on the map. And a lot of the die faces give you a bunch of extra feet. Um, one of the dice, the red die, is 
is always a competition with other players, which is interesting. Um, what you get if you win that competition varies with each one of the uh, cards that you play with. But again, you only get the stuff if you have the most swords rolled and you only get those swords on the red die. And the purple die is a dinosaur. And there's only one face on this entire um, dinosaur die. And it seems like this is usually the most expensive die to buy. And so you always have a one in six chance of rolling that face. But in general, if you do, it can be a very powerful effect. Uh, now, again, one in six doesn't sound great, but you might be rolling that die like three or four times or even more if you push your luck a lot within a given round. So there is a lot of variance, but there's also a lot of control to a certain extent because, again, you will only bust once you have reserved at least three of these faces. So at this point, I should probably talk about how the game felt to play, because that's kind of a, a brief overview of the game. And uh, in our four-player game, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, it was the first game for all of us, and we were just bumbling around, and then uh, one of my opponents just kind of won by a long shot. I think I was doing a little bit too much engine building, like building too much infrastructure to get expensive dice and all that, while they were just, you know, getting feet. This is a race game. <laughs> you need to be across the finish line first. Uh, about a week later, I ended up playing a two-player game with that player who uh, won that game, and um, he blew me out of the water in our first game, and we decided to play again, um, and in each one of these games, we were using a different setup for the cards. Uh, the rulebook itself comes with, like, 10 or so uh, predefined setups that you can play with, uh, with the maps and specific cards. So we played with the first race in our four-player game, the second race in the two-player game, and then the third race. So I've done the first three races. And there's definitely some interesting combos that happen. There are some of the cards that um, interact with other cards. Like if you roll this face, then you get a benefit if you also have a white and a green die also with that face in that specific round. So there's um, cards that really influence how you will be um, building your dice composition. But realistically, this game is all about trying to find the broken combo <laughs> for that specific setup and then trying to utilize that the best you can to uh, run out the race and win it. Um, so in the third game, I just barely won and it was it was uh, down to the line. Like it literally got to the point where I was just a bit ahead of my opponent. Um, they could tell I was going to be a little bit ahead. So they pushed their luck one more time and they busted, which means they couldn't move. And I was able to win on that last round. It was super close and it was honestly pretty exciting <laughs> right in that moment. The two-player game goes pretty fast because it's just the two of you going. Even though much of the game is simultaneous, you roll your dice simultaneously. You can kind of pause if you want based off of what other people have rolled, I think. The rules for this are a little... <laughs> They're, they're probably clear enough, but we were playing a little loosely to the point where, you know, if I had, if I rolled a bunch and I was like, okay, I've got three swords, and my opponent says, oh, I've only got two swords, well, then they might roll again to try and get that third sword, and if they got it, well, then I might roll my dice again to try and get that fourth sword or something like that. And I think that's legal, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not totally sure, but it was fun. <laughs> that's what's important. So this is essentially a... <sighs> a laboratory box of experiments of, of how these dice are going to interact with each other. There are eight different dice, and in every one of these games, there were several dice that we just ignored, which was kind of interesting. Like, just some of the dice just seemed more powerful, so why would we get those other dice? Uh, in particular, there were specific dice that we would oftentimes just run the bank on, just maximize everyone to get as much of that die as they could because it seemed like the most powerful one, and oftentimes those kind of dictated the flow of the game, um, which you know, is maybe like, a, oh, that die was imbalanced, but maybe it was just more powerful than the other ones 
in uh, in comparison for that specific setup. Uh, after our third game, we were discussing it a bit, and we both came to a similar-ish conclusion where we think that in future, we might just go random with all the cards. The rules say that you can totally do that. You don't have to go with the prefabbed decks. Um, and there's a couple um, uh, suggestions like go random, but, you know, make sure there's at least one die that's this cost and make sure you have at least one die that's going to let you remove a die or something like that. But I think random is probably going to be maybe a more interesting way to go. I mean, the predefined races are fine, but it almost seemed like they were about maximizing the combo that the designer kind of saw and placed into that predefined race. So I think for your first race, uh, for your first several races, you should totally use those. Honestly, maybe your first 10 races, just go through all of the races that are in the book. Um, in the future, I probably will do more of those races, but I also could see myself just going random to see what crazy uh, alignment of these dice is going to work out, and that's a very deck-building type thing. Like, a lot of people uh, argue with Dominion that the game is uh, is all about the setup. Like, you set up the cards, and then you analyze what you're going to be doing in that game, and then you kind of just do that plan. And to a certain extent, you could say Cubitos is going to be somewhat similar, although there's so much die rolling that that plan might not work out the way you had hoped, and so you might have to veer into other things. Uh, now, on the map, there's a bunch of stuff going on. There's teleporters, there's uh, jetpacks, there's a, a whole bunch of other things that you can interact with. Uh, there's water that you could potentially walk through if you have specific dice. So there's quite a bit of variety going on there. And this is just a, a zany game. <laughs> it's a zany experience overall. Uh, you know, one player blew out the first couple of games, but I still had fun. The third game was right down to the wire and I still had fun. Uh, so I'm looking forward to trying this one more in the future. I feel like Part of the fun might be lost a little bit playing this one online versus um, playing it in person with a whole bunch of people rolling dice. And I, I think that might be maybe part of the, the ambiance is lost in that setting. But, you know, that's the way I play games right now because of the pandemic. So I'm going to do what I can. But either way, I can see myself playing this one more in the future. I've certainly enjoyed my first three plays. And there are a bunch of people in my gaming group who have not had a chance to try this yet who I think would enjoy it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to an opportunity to uh, making that happen because uh, it'll be fun to see their reactions to the goofiness and zaniness of this game uh, when they get to play it for the first time. All right, we've now reached the fourth game I'll be discussing today, and that one is Dune Imperium. Now, I've been wanting to play this game for quite a while. <laughs> it came out, I think, a few months ago, and uh, from a personal perspective, I was a huge hard sci-fi fan when I was in my early teens. I read uh, just about every book in the library in the sci-fi section, and I read most of the books in the Dune series. I really liked Dune, again, when I was like 12 or 13 years old. So I have a soft spot in my, you know, nostalgia for Dune. And uh, the new movie looks great uh, from an uh, aesthetic perspective, and this new game is using the art assets and stuff from that. So that was all enough to uh, make me intrigued. And then the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to try it. Um, I've talked a decent bit about Lost Ruins of Arnak, which is one of the best games I played last year. And that is a deck building game where you have workers that you can send out doing worker placement type stuff as you do other things. And I heard that Dune Imperium was similar. Uh, the similarities actually go even farther than that because both are deck building games. And in both games, you have two workers. Now, technically, in Dune Imperium, you can buy a third worker, but they are both games that are primarily about the deck building, but also have a significant worker placement uh, mechanic. Now, I'm not going to talk about Lost Ruins of Arnak anymore. Let's just focus on Dune Imperium. And it has a really interesting uh, cycle to the way the rounds work. You're going to play through up to 10 rounds in a game, and you're going to draw your hand of cards, and you have your two workers. And the cards on them, most of them anyway, have little icons that tell you where you could place a worker. So on your turn, you can play a card 
and then place one of your workers onto a spot that matches the icon or one of the icons on that card. And then you can perform the action of where you put your worker down. And then most likely the card that you played will have an ability in the tan area of the card that activates when you place that worker out. So you're trying to go for good combos with those things. Once you have placed both of your workers out, well, or, or all of your workers, because you might have three, um, you uh, can't play any more, obviously. And in that case, you instead will do a reveal turn where you take the rest of your cards in your hand, you put them face up in front of you. And then the blue area at the bottom of each of these cards is the reveal effects. And these will give you things like buying power, which is a little diamond icon. It could give you combat points or maybe even special abilities that you could do in that exact moment. And then you're done for the round. So each one of the game's rounds, you're looking at your starting hand of five cards and you're trying to figure out which cards are going to be the two or three that will be used for sending out your workers. And then you also look at the cards that aren't those cards to make sure that the bottom effects are the kind of stuff that you want for your reveal turn. Now, there are ways to draw more cards in the middle of your turn, which can definitely shake things up. And like a worker placement game or a standard worker placement game, once you go onto a spot, nobody else can go onto that spot for the rest of the round. Um, so what you're doing with these worker placement spots is you're accruing a variety of resources, which you will spend in a variety of different ways. There are some influence tracks that will give you victory points when you get to certain spots and um, also might interact with specific cards. And one thing that I really like about this game is how you win. Uh, now, there is a victory point track on the side of the board. And as I said before, you're going to play up to 10 rounds. But at the end of a round, if anyone has 10 or more victory points, then the game is over and whoever has the most endgame points is going to be the winner. You might be able to get one or two more based off of uh, some things that you have in your hand, potentially more. But that does mean that the victory points are very low. And that gives this game kind of a, a classic vibe. Uh, I've played a lot of Settlers of Catan in the past, and you win when you get to 10 points in that. I also got some Alien uh, Frontiers vibes, which is another game that you win, I think, when you get to 10 victory points. And I play so many games these days where a winning score is in the hundreds or maybe 200s that it was refreshing to play a game where you can win with 10 points. <laughs> you know, the points are very granular. And so each one of them is precious. Uh, now, there are several ways to get these. As I mentioned, as you go up the uh, influence tracks, you can get them. They show up on those tracks. But another thing comes from the combat. Now, when you play on certain spots on the board, you will be able to send your uh, little cubes, which are troops, out into a combat area in the middle of the board, kind of the bottom right area of the board. And at the end of each round, the player who has the highest amount of combat value in that area, which is a combination of cubes as well as combat that you can add in from uh, various uh, cards that you can play and from your reveal, the player who has the most uh, combat value will get the effect on the top card for that round. There's uh, three different spots for first place, second place, and third place. And oftentimes that top effect will give you a victory point or maybe near the end of the game, it could give you two victory points. Uh, now, considering the game ends when somebody hits 10 points, gaining two points from winning that conquest is a very significant deal. And so a big part of this game is about that combat area. Now, as I mentioned, you get combat from the cubes and from other effects. And one big one comes from these intrigue cards. Now you can draw them in a couple of different ways and you take them from a random deck of cards and you put them into your hand and they can be played uh, in many different circumstances. Uh, some of them can just be played on your turn as some sort of benefit. Uh, others can be played in combat to suddenly add a lot more combat effect. Um, uh, even more, you only play at the very end of the game, which could potentially give you some more victory points, which means you could catch somebody by surprise. They got to 10 points. They think they're going to win and you go from nine to 11 and steal the victory from them because you were able to play toward this card. Uh, in general, it seems like these cards aren't just like play it to get a point. It seems like you play it and then if you met a specific condition, then you're going to get that point. 
Uh, now, uh, the reason I want to mention that is because this is probably one of the more controversial parts of this game because it is random and hidden. Uh, you draw these uh, intrigue cards and they might be great for your uh, specific moment or they might not. Uh, but most importantly, your opponents don't know what you have. They just know how many of them that you have. So you have to try to play around that and hedge your bets when you're doing things like trying to figure out how much you want to commit to the combat because you might commit enough to make you uh, think you're totally safe, but then boom, they reveal an intrigue card and suddenly add a bunch and now they are winning. Um, now that's not the only way that uh, extra combat could happen. Uh, I've only played this game once, but in our play, I was able to pick up two of these cards, which are called, I believe, Sandworm. And based off of a specific condition, when you reveal with these Sandworms, as in you don't play them for a worker placement spot, you wait till the end of the round and then uh, play them out, these could give you combat. Um, these specific uh, cards, and many of the cards give you combat, but these Sandworms give you a lot, four or maybe even six combat, which is huge. Uh, so this is yet another way to kind of surprise your opponents, especially if you're uh, later on in turn order, if you're maybe the last one to reveal, you could drop one or two of these Sandworms and suddenly jump up, you know, eight or maybe 12 uh, combat, which your opponents don't see coming at all because you just have a couple of cubes and snatch that victory away from them for that specific round to get whatever benefits are showing. Again, it could be points, it could be various other resources. Um, there, there's quite a variety of stuff that you can get from those combats, but combat is super important in this game. Now, I should probably start talking about our play more and uh, not go into the specifics as much now. Uh, I was able to play this one once. It was just a few nights ago and it was a three player game. Uh, I've been wanting to try this for a while and the person I played it with, one of the people uh, has played it many times and they really enjoy it. Another person, it was their second play and they were pretty lukewarm on their first play, but they, they, they were easily convinced to try it again, <laughs> let's say. Uh, now, as we were playing through this game, um, right from the get-go, I was super overwhelmed at the options. Right in the very first turn, I was looking at my hand of cards and looking at the board, and all the spots on the board have different icons on them that match up with your various cards. And and I literally asked my friend who'd played it a bunch, I was like, what's a good first turn? I, I, I'm a little overwhelmed by what I should do. Uh, there's so many things I could do, but I feel like I might do something bad. He gave me some advice, and I did the action. And I think by the time we got to the third round or so, I understood the board. Like it took me like about three or so rounds to be like, oh, okay, so these symbols show up here. And in general, they do this, this other symbol shows up there. And in general, it does that. And, um, and from that point on, I felt much more in line with the, the things that I was doing. And I was able to actually make plans. I was very reactive those first couple of turns. And I found myself really enjoying the game. Uh, now I did say that this is a deck builder. And when you do that reveal action, you can get buying power, which lets you buy new cards that you can then put into your discard pile. And um, I was able to pick up a couple of those sandworms that I talked about a little bit before as well as a couple of other uh, quite good cards. Uh, now, one thing, one card in particular that I picked up was uh, quite interesting. Uh, when you played it out, it would either bump you up once on a specific influence track, or it would give you some spice, which is a resource. But if instead of playing it out with a worker, you waited and then played it out with your reveal, then if you spent three spice, you could get a victory point. So that means I had a card that when revealed in certain conditions would give me points just continuing as we went throughout the game. I picked that card up probably in the second round of the game, and our game, I think, went about eight rounds. And I ended up using that card to get three victory points throughout the game. It kind of became a focus of my game. Uh, I was able to win a combat or two in the right moment, but I mostly focused on trying to get enough spice so that I had the spice in the right moment when I revealed these cards to get a point with that reveal action. And then one of the intrigue cards that I drew um, also said that I could reveal it to spend four spice to get another victory point. So I had 
one card that let me get a sneak point, and then I had another card that gave me, I believe, three points ongoing as part of my engine throughout the game. And then at one moment, I think the seventh, the second to last round, um, there was a uh, a double victory point combat card that was out, and. I could tell that if my, one of my opponents won that combat, that they would win. They were at eight victory points, so two more points would be enough to get them to 10. I didn't think anybody else would get to 10, so I spent that entire round just going bonkers on that specific uh, combat. Uh, I had a sandworm, which gave me uh, uh, extra uh, combat over there, and I, I spent all, all my actions in that round getting more cubes and just dumping cubes into that area. I think I got my combat up to like 21 or so, which is quite a bit. Uh, we saw more later on in the game, but it was just barely enough so that that player who was two points away from winning couldn't get there. Uh, they ended up mentioning later on they could get, I think, to 18 combat or so, but not the 21 that I had. So that gave me two victory points as well. So if you're starting to hear what I'm saying, I got two points from that. Uh, I got three points from the card that kept cycling through my deck. I got another point for that other card. So now we're looking at like six out of the 10 points. And then each one of the four influence tracks has a victory point that you can get if you get up to the, I think, second bump level. And I got, I think, three or so of those. And then I, I think I got another point some other way, but I was able to piece together 10 victory points uh, through all of these different means, uh, a little bit of combat, a little bit of deck building, a little bit of luck from the influence card, uh, the intrigue card that I drew. And uh, when the dust settled on the game, I actually won. Uh, it was a tie at 10 players, but I won the tie break. Uh, and the scores ended up being 10, 10, uh, 7, or 8, I believe. In fact, that player who was just one round before angling to win uh, ended up being in third place because not all these victory points are secure. Uh, you can only, uh, some of the victory points you get for going up these influence tracks, you only keep them if you are still the highest on that track uh, and nobody goes higher than you. And one of those points that, that player had, they ended up losing in that last round of the game, which obviously meant they lost a point and the person, the other person who took it gained a victory point. Uh, now I should mention that that card that let me spend spice to get points, I could only activate that ability if I had that special token for that specific type of influence. So I had to invest a lot of energy to get that high up on that influence track. And then it's possible somebody else could have come along and uh, vied on that track for me to try and take that token away, which would have disabled my power to just turn spice into points. But obviously they didn't do that because they were working on other things. And considering the scores were so close at the end, um, I don't think <laughs> their decisions were all that bad. In fact, when, when the dust uh, settled, as I said, I won on the tiebreaker, but the opponent of mine who had 10 points as well, uh, they had an intrigue card that was worth zero, one or two extra victory points. They just weren't able to quite get to the ability to even get one of the points out of that. So even though they drew a intrigue card that was an end game card that potentially could have given them the victory, they weren't able to activate the condition that that card needed to actually give them the point. Now, I suppose uh, one more thing I want to briefly mention is the fact that when you play this game, you're going to play as a character. There are, I believe, eight different characters that come in the game, and they will give you an ongoing uh, well, they, they will give you a asymmetric effect uh, of two different types. It might be a uh, difference in setup or maybe specific actions are different. And then one of the cards that you have in your deck will, will activate on a specific special action. Uh, the one that I played gave me a slight discount when I went to specific spots, which was uh, definitely nice. Uh, and it also let me spend spice in specific moments to go up on these influence tracks. So I definitely utilized my ability to uh, get more influence than other players. I did have to spend spice and spice was important for the other parts of my engine, but I did have more opportunities to get influence and I was able to leverage that into my victory. And at the end of the game, I felt much the same as I did in the middle of the game where I just 
enjoyed it. It was fun. I mean, obviously it's fun to win. Uh, so that's a little bit of a winner's bias there as well. But an interesting note for me is the fact that right before we played Dune Imperium, we played Lost Ruins of Arnak. We literally finished a game of Lost Ruins of Arnak and then played Dune Imperium. So I got to really see them back to back and see their similarities and their differences. And I can say that they are very different games, uh, which is interesting because again, it feels like there's a lot of similarity. Deck building with a couple of workers and there's worker placement stuff going on. But in Lost Ruins of Arnak, there's so much other stuff happening. So many different resources and then you do a couple of worker placement things, but then you do a whole bunch of other things. That's just different from Dune Imperium where you effectively do a couple of worker placement turns and then dump the remainder of your cards and get the stuff on them. Technically, you don't actually have to play both of your workers. If you think it's important to reveal earlier, then you can do that, but then you won't actually be playing that worker out. So it seems like that's going to be a very niche type of circumstance. Uh, now, as far as deck building is concerned, I kind of bumbled through it. Like, I don't think I had an amazing deck at the end of my game of Dune Imperium. Uh, I had maybe a synergy or two, uh, but for the most part, I just added good cards that were fine, and I was happy to see them when they ended up popping up. But there is one interesting aspect to the deck building in this game in particular, and that is the, the spots that you can send your workers out to. Um, now, I've only played this game once, but my friend who's played it many times was telling me about experiences that they've had where they called their deck by removing cards to make their deck smaller, uh, only to realize that they had removed all of the cards from their deck that let them send workers to a certain area of the board, which meant that their options were drastically reduced, and suddenly they were really trying to buy a new card that let them go to that specific spot. So you're trying to consider where you can send your workers, because that's important. In addition to what the effect is on the card when you play the worker and the reveal effect, some cards you never want to play with a worker and some cards you never want to do for a reveal. And you're trying to balance all of these things together as you're playing through the game. Uh, so this uh, one play left me intrigued to definitely try this one more. It was not the fastest game in the world. It was probably closing on two hours, maybe maybe an hour and a half. I don't remember exactly. We did go eight out of the potential maximum 10 rounds. Uh, but the length didn't really bug me. I, I felt like I was doing a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed the combos and I really enjoyed the decision space that I was in. And I'm looking forward to trying this one more. Uh, the biggest, I don't know, potential issue that I see is one uh, that my friend who's played it a bunch uh, mentioned a few times to me. And that is they feel like the weakest part of the game is the intrigue deck. Uh, they played it a bunch and they've definitely seen some pretty large swings from the randomness of that card draw. I've only played once, but, you know, I, I would not have won uh, if I had drawn that card that let me spend spice to get that point. But if I hadn't spent that spice on the point, then I might have sent my worker somewhere else or spent that spice doing something else. So uh, I think a lot of these things might even out, and I'm looking forward to trying it more in the future. Uh, I don't think it's um, cast a spell on all of the people in my group, so uh, this one might be a game I specifically play with a couple of people who uh, enjoy it more than others. Uh, but for me, I think I did enjoy it more than most of my friends. Uh, maybe not quite as much as that friend who's played it a bunch, but uh, I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to play this one more in the future. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this Good Games vlog. I hope you enjoyed learning about these new games, and I hope I wasn't too rambly. I feel like I might have been a little more scatterbrained than I normally am when I was discussing all of these. Uh, there's been quite a lot going on, and some of these games I played a couple of weeks ago, and then some I just played a few days ago. Uh, in general, I try to wait until I have three or four games to discuss, and funnily enough, uh, I had three games that start with a C and then one with a D, so this is a very compressed alphabetical uh, list of games that I talked about today. But either way, I think that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.